Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. With me today are two guests who joined me last time to discuss their nonprofit organization called Healing Justice, a national organization that serves individuals who have experienced trauma and inequity in our justice system. Using restorative justice, they provide post-trial support and recovery to crime victims, survivors, and their families. It's good to have you with us again, Jennifer and Katie. Welcome. Thank you. Today, we are continuing the discussion and talk about the wide impact of wrongful conviction as it affects a family and how healing justice was created. But today, we'd like to begin with you, Katie, and tell us your story. Absolutely, and thank you, Harriet. Um, it's so important, as as you know well, the the the, the focus of these cases, um, and rightly so, has historically been on the on the individuals who were wrongly convicted and and exonerated, and we've we've forgotten about the rest of the individuals who are impacted and and their families and their communities. So Jennifer and I are really grateful for this opportunity to share what we experienced individually or personally and, and also the work that we're doing to raise awareness about this piece of these cases. Um, as you noted, I do have a, a personal uh, connection with a wrongful conviction and that is that my mother is an exonerated individual from Virginia. Uh, it is an old case, uh, like Jennifer's, an old case. Um, it was way back when I was just out of law school. I hadn't been out of law school even a year. And uh, my mother's longtime partner, who was essentially my stepfather, uh, died of suicide. He died unexpectedly of a single gunshot wound to the head in his own hand, I mean, in his own house with his own gun. And uh, Despite our shock over his death, we did accept it as a suicide, as did the rest of our family and our friends. Um, and uh, there was no reason to um, suspect any kind of foul play, not only because of the nature of the death, but also he had been struggling for a very, very long time with significant personal issues and with um, mental health crises as well. Um, and, um, and so for us, it was a personal tragedy and uh, we tried to put our lives back together. Uh, they had been together for about 13 years and, um, and so he was a significant member of our family at the time. And it was also in the wake of my mother's own father committing suicide um, a few decades earlier. Earlier, so at the time there was a lot of of support that 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 my mom needed, um, having experienced now these these two suicides mm -hmm. of people very close to her, people that she cherished, right. um, unknown to us. Um, truly until many, many, many years later, uh, the police who actually came to the scene and investigated confirmed that the death was a suicide. They used gunshot residue tests to determine that um, my mother's partner, Roger was his name, had indeed fired the, the, the shot that killed him. 
And then both the local and state medical examiners had determined that the, de that the death was a suicide as well. The local medical examiner who came to the scene and then, of course, the state medical examiner that uh, conducted the autopsy. But these were things that we weren't privy to. And despite this forensic confirmation of suicide, there was a state police investigator who essentially injected himself into the case really within a matter of days. Um, and based on notes that we would see many years later, he decided that the case would be a homicide and he decided that my mom must be responsible. And uh, his goal was to to manipulate out of her a, a statement that he called um, tantamount to a confession. And, and I don't know that we'll ever know why he set about this course, but it really ended up being the whole of his investigation. There was no interviewing of key witnesses, about, uh, no confirming of my mom's whereabouts on the night of the death, no waiting for these forensic test results that ultimately proved um, suicide. What the investigation amounted to was a long unrecorded interview of my mother just a couple of weeks after the death where he tried to convince her that her memories of her last evening with Roger were incorrect and that what had actually happened is that she had fallen asleep in the room where Roger had killed himself and um, awoken to it and then suppressed a memory of it out of trauma. And none of this interview was recorded, but um, at the very end of the day, it was an all day event, he um, did, the investigator did turn on the, the tape recording and you can hear my mom, you know, she's just devastated. And of course she has no memory. Her last memories were of saying goodbye to Roger and then going to the grocery store and driving home and seeing my brother. And, and um, but the, the police officer was insistent that that hadn't happened. And he even ended up sending her to psychotherapy in an effort to um, uncover these lost memories. And of course, um, it was confirmed that she had no lost memories, but none of that really mattered. The 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 state, the, the investigator and the state were really intent on going to trial, and she ended up being charged with first-degree murder mm. and, um, and going to trial in Virginia. And, um, you know, the, uh, the, there, there are, of course, many, many details to the case. I think um, some of the important things to note was that this investigator really was acting you know, on his own. And later when he was asked about his, um, his interactions with my mother, he, he, he really, he really bragged about the fact that she was very naive and didn't realize what was going on and that she fell for this ruse and, um, and, you know, that she should have gotten an attorney and, and didn't realize that she did and that he had really, you know, kind of, bagged an innocent person, if you will. And, and um, later, even later when he was challenged again, he, he, he said, well, you know, either she's um, guilty or she's just really, really stupid. And my, and my mother was, um, you know, a, a very um, law-abiding conservative person. She was in her 50s. She had a career. She was, you know, taking care of, of, of myself and, and my siblings. And, um, and, and really, she had no idea what was going on. She just did not see what was happening. And, um, and I think really for a while there even was questioning her own memory until, of course, um, uh, 
it became clear that that her memory was correct and that she hadn't been when Roger with Roger when he killed himself. But at any rate, it did go to trial. And at trial, um, the state presented a, a theory of homicide. There was no mention of the of the gunshot residue tests or the medical examiner's reports. All of that we would find later. And the the argument was that during those hours of interview when the tape recorder was off, my mom had remembered being present for the suicide. Um, and that was considered to be a confession of sorts, even though mm. later it was clear that she had no memory of that. And um, there were there were witnesses who came forward, of course, and, and um, uh, corroborated my mom's account. And we had our own forensic experts. But in the end, uh, she was convicted and she was sentenced to 22 years oh. in prison uh, on a first degree murder charge. Um, my own personal story beyond that is that um, we really didn't know where to turn after that. And it fell to me and my siblings and our family and our friends to really uh, put together the, 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 the dream team that would ultimately free my mom. Um, I think we thought at first that the court would correct it itself and that did not happen. And so I ended up um, leaving my first job out of, out of law school was with the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I left and I put together a, a hodgepodge investigative and legal team of family members and friends and neighbors, a few friends from law school. And we ended up going back and conducting uh, the investigation that led to the evidence that, um, you know, later proved that it was a suicide. We discovered the forensic ex experts and the the, G the gunshot residue re uh, results and the medical examiner's reports and other evidence of suicide, as well as a variety of other things, you know, key witness reports that um, disputed uh, testimony that the prosecution witnesses had given. And we were able to go back into federal court and demonstrate that um, the state had suppressed an abundance of evidence that demonstrated that, that my mom was innocent. And uh, we won. We won. And the court overturned the case on uh, what we call Brady grounds on and um, the quote from the court was that the case was a monument to prosecutorial mishandling and indiscretion. And in, in addition to that, the court um, confirmed that my mom had an unrefuted alibi for the time of the death and that the state's uh, forensic case was manipulated because it was contrary, of course, to the, the gunshot residue test results that, that confirmed the death was a suicide. And um, from beginning to end, it took 12 mm. years. From the time oh. he was charged until uh, she was freed. And I spent about 10 of those um, working full time on her case. Full time. Mm -hmm. Can you um, very briefly explain, I, I think I've probably brought it up before, what that Brady rule is, because it was such a key part of your the case you described. It was. It was the key. And, and, and frankly, it's it's a really important um, uh, element in many cases of wrongful conviction and innocence. It is right. um, where state officials, whether it's prosecutors, police, forensic officials, really anyone on the state prosecuting team fails for any reason, even if it's just simply because the evidence is unknown to them, they fail to turn over evidence that would support the defendant's 
claim of innocence. And um, and so it's an important uh, legal opportunity because one, of course, it demands um, accountability from prosecuting officials to make sure that they've gone back and, and seen everything that the police and the forensic officials have gathered and, and that they've turned that over. And if that doesn't happen, then it is an opportunity for an innocent person to get back into court um, because it, you are required to, to present new evidence uh, when you go back into court. I think there's a, and I don't want to get too far off into uh, the legal aspect, but I do think people believe that, um, you know, once you're convicted, the issue of guilt or innocence um, can be, can be um, relitigated, and it can't. Once you've been convicted, you are seen as a guilty person, and so unless you find something entirely new, something that you couldn't find before, you cannot get back into court um, on a claim of innocence, and and so the Brady, the Brady rule is a very important one. Yes, it is. Wow. Now, um, the impact um, of what happened to your mother on your family what what was that like? It is hard to describe, of course. Um, Jennifer describes a black hole. I think that is. Um, a very good way of putting it. I don't think that most innocent people and their families ever imagine that this will happen, and they don't see it coming. Uh, you, you watch, you know, movies where you see people, um, you know, believing that if they're innocent, well, then they'll be acquitted, right? Or they won't even be charged, right? And I remember my mom. My mom describes a lot of that, and and certainly my family felt it as well. I think I might have been the only one in the family. I had clerked for a judge right out of law school, or begun clerking for a judge, and I think I was probably the only one in my family that realized that you could be convicted even if you weren't guilty. I didn't want to dwell on that, of course, or um, you know, cause my family further anguish by um, sharing that, but, but you know, innocent people and their families believe that, that justice will prevail and that their innocence will be seen and uh, confirmed. And so it does feel like falling off into a black hole. And of course, you're rendered voiceless, right? Because um, the story that is told in court is never the story of what you know to be true. And you don't, you aren't permitted permitted to speak up, right? Really, no one wants to hear the truth, and um, and so you sit and watch this go on, and you're um, completely incapable. There's no opportunity to stop it. And uh, my family is was a very close family. Um, we were close. Our, my siblings are close, the three of us, and we were close, of course, with our with my mother and and my grandmother and our aunts and uncles. And um, it was devastating. And I think perhaps what's important to talk about here is the way, the very specific ways that family members are impacted. The family members' lives stop too, right? Um, our loved ones are imprisoned on the inside, but then we are imprisoned right along beside them on the outside. There's no going on with your life as if it's not happening. There's no leaving your loved one behind in prison, you know, to fend for her or himself. And so, you know, for my siblings and my grandmother and, and to some extent my mother's brothers and others, our lives stopped in that moment and became about how we were going to 
free mom. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the typical things that we might have done, finish school, uh, fall in love, get married, have children, start jobs, have careers, save money, you know, buy houses, all of those things uh, were interrupted and interrupted. I was in my mid twenties when this happened. My brother was a little older. My sister was a little younger, but I was, I was 40 when it was over. And Mm. so the opportunity to have the life that, you know, I one time dreamed of having or the life that I would have had, um, that was gone. And more than that, I think what we see, and I, I know that what we experienced is just layer after layer after layer of trauma. You know, there is the trauma of being, of someone you love being wrongly accused and you're, you're wrongly accused right along beside them. And then there's the trauma of the trial and there's the trauma of the guilty verdict. And then there's the trauma of seeing your loved one taken, you know, in shackles to the prison. And then there's the trauma of visiting them in prison and, and all of the, all the, of that. Horror, the horror, right. And we went every single week, you know, for mm. all of those years. And, and there is the trauma with, you know, with every appeal you're hopeful, right? That 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 you're going to be seen and you're going to be heard, and the injustice is going to be corrected, and your loved one's going to be freed. And then, you know, you're kind of slammed back um, with each uh, with with each refusal of the court um, to to aid your loved one. And um, and so there's just and and of course all of the the holidays, you know, that are spent in the prison and not together, and and then the loved ones you lose along the way. I think um, for our family, one of the greatest ways we were robbed is that um, my mother's mother, with whom we were all very close, and of course my mother especially, so was able to last until my mom came home, but then she died within a few after. Right, and so there was all of that time lost, you know, in in, in this state of misery, and 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 no chance to to recover together and celebrate. So there are just many, many ways that um, that family members are injured again and again and again alongside their loved ones in prison, and and it's one of the things that healing justice is is trying to both assess and address. Oh, that was a great segue. <laughs> All right. So in 2013, at an Innocence Network conference, the first seeds were planted, which resulted in the formation of your project, Healing Justice. Now, I'd love for you to tell us about how that happened. Absolutely. But I'm going to invite Jennifer to to, to, to really sure. share of the story, but I will start Absolutely. by saying that um, that I I went on after my mom's case to um, to work on additional cases, and then later um, became a, um, a board member of the Mid Atlantic Innocence Project, and then the the executive director of the Rocky Mountain Innocence Project, and then later went on to the Innocence Project, and then of course now to Healing Justice. But the point <sighs> is that I met Jennifer through this work, and um, like so many innocence lawyers, uh, I looked to Jennifer to come and educate, you know, my community about uh, mistaken eyewitness identification. And so when I was with the Rocky Mountain Innocence Project, Jennifer came out to do a training and we became fast friends. And um, really it was in that moment that 
I realized that crime victims and survivors were hurt in these cases as well. I don't think that I understood it completely. I knew when we were working on cases and seeking DNA testing that clearly there was going to be a hurtful impact on the families and the survivors in these cases, you know, if we discovered that there had been, that, that our clients were innocent and that there had been a wrongful conviction. But we always felt like we were doing right by the crime victims, right, to, 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 to bring these cases forward because perhaps we'd find the actual perpetrator. I don't think I realized just how much the exoneration work that we were doing all around the country at the time was, was re-victimizing and re-traumatizing crime victims and survivors. And then, of course, we were inviting Jennifer. Everyone was inviting Jennifer Thompson mm -hmm. all around the country, really all around the world, to come mm -hmm. tell their story for the purposes of our policy reform work. And it, it was in that moment of, of working with Jennifer in Utah that I realized her story was so much greater than she had been permitted to tell and that um, she had been hurt in ways that people hadn't been interested in hearing. And so Jennifer, maybe you can mm. describe um, that moment at the Innocence Network Conference in 2013. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was such a turning point for me because as Katie said, you know, for years I had been you know, taken all over the country, all over Canada and parts of Europe and Mexico to tell the story. And what I didn't even know myself was how much trauma I was causing my own body, my own mind by retelling the story over and over again. Every time I told the story, every time I tell the story, I have to re-trigger my brain. I have to go back into a space that is really very painful to go back to. And, and I thought that I was supposed to do it. I thought that it was my, my obligation, my penance, so to speak. Um, and, and so I was required, you know, for myself to do this work. And it wasn't until 2013 that Katie um, decided to have the first ever victims panel at a conference. And it was really this opportunity to have people hear from the experiences of crime survivors from a wrongful conviction case. So she invited myself and two murder victim family members to come. And all three of us thought, well, this is just going to be another one of those things where we're going to be asked to tell our story and, and you know, you do it. Um, but at the beginning of the panel, Katie begins to facilitate, and she asked this question that literally gutted all of us. And the question was, how has the wrongful conviction harmed you? Mm. And no one had ever asked me that question. Really? You know, as far as I was being told the only person harmed had been Ronald. The only person harmed had been Ronald's family. Mm. And I hadn't ever talked about my own personal harm. I'd been telling a narrative that was really about Ronald being innocent, Ronald going to prison, Ronald being exonerated. But there was, there was really no space in that story for me to talk about what had happened to me and the things that people had said to me and the people that hadn't been there for me and the, and the people that had asked too much of me. And when Katie asked this question, I just started to cry. I literally couldn't speak. And the other two crime survivors began to cry. And it was the first time anyone had ever asked us what had happened to us because of the wrongful conviction. And it would be later during that conference that I would sit down with other crime survivors and start to talk about 
um, the experiences within our own lives and within our own families about what had happened. And it, it was the catalyst, honestly, of healing justice. And I didn't know it and we hadn't named it at the time, but, um, but it was the beginning of thinking about what would a space look like for all harmed individuals mm-hmm. from these cases. You know, I'd been meeting crime survivors for years. People would reach out to me because the book, crime survivors would call my publisher and say, please, I need to talk to her. She, her mm-hmm. story is my story. And, and I would talk to, to, you know, rape survivors from wrongful conviction cases that were on the verge of suicide. I, I would talk to murder victim mm-hmm. family members who just didn't have a voice in the narrative. I would talk to exonerees and their mothers and their children and their siblings. And what you really realize is this crossover of harm for everybody. It's the, the lost years. It's the not being able to trust the system. It's um, family members not understanding our pain. It's, it's, it's so much, it's so complicated. Right. And so 2013 just really was the beginning of, of healing justice. And we wouldn't launch it until 2015, but it was the beginning of, um, of what this space would look like. All right. All right. So this is a perfect way to close out our segment. And then uh, I want you both, of course, to return so we can continue talking about healing justice. And I thought it would be a good idea to give uh, your website uh, in case people would like to learn more for themselves. So would you tell us what that is? Absolutely. Uh, healingjusticeproject.org all together www.healingjusticeproject.org right okay wonderful all right so we will uh, pick this up next time I'm sure our listeners have gained a great deal from the two uh, segments we've already done and please come back and join us on pursuing justice we will see you next time and thank you for from uh all of us, to both of you, Jennifer and Katie. Thank you. Thank you.